Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. And let me just start by saying, hey, I really appreciate you listening. And I I love it when I hear people say, hey, I recommended Money Talks or Money Talks tweets, etc. Or five minutes with Mike to other people. I want you to know it is sincerely appreciated. But I also think you're going to appreciate what I've got going for you today on Money Talks. I've got Tony Greer, TG Macro. Tony's the guy who initiated and got uh, well-known recognition and deserved recognition for doing the great rotation. That was he got out of tech stocks in 220 into commodity stocks. But here's the thing. He got out of that trade and got back into tech in March of this year, wrote it up. I mean, man, that's great timing. I'll ask him what he thinks is next. I've also got Peter Menzies talking about Bill C-18, which he calls the biggest failed piece of legislation in recent memory. That's the one that says, hey, Google's not going to have Canadian news links on their site or recommend them, uh, Facebook the same way. All of the fallout from that, it's devastating for small publishers who remind, uh, who really relied on that level of publicity and referral given by these two major social media sites. But I'll talk more about that. I've also got Victor on with me. I've got Michael. I've got Uh, Aussie, and some great, uh, goofy, shocking stat. Hey, a positive shocking stat for a change. All of that coming your way. But first, in case you missed it, last week I commented on how, well, for lack of a more eloquent way of saying it, we're screwing our younger generation financially. And I'm going to sum up the response to that by saying, hey, there didn't seem to be many who cared, including young people who display clear signs of the Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, they don't question the establishment holding them financial hostage. Think about this. They got the highest overall tax burden to the three levels of government in Canadian history. Now, it's noteworthy that when young people complain about not being able to get a house, for example, they don't start with the fact that the three levels of government take something between, what, 30 and 50% of their income. And this is in an inflationary environment that's, what, seen food prices up 20% in two years? rent in major urban centers even more. And despite the fall in the recent gas prices compared to last June and last October's record, you still got gasoline about 50, 55% higher than it was this time three years ago. And of course, government policy played a major role in the inflationary environment we're in. So think about that. You got 30 to 50% of your income taken. You're paying higher prices than ever. How are you supposed to save a down payment for a house. Well, by the way, and on top of that, government adds hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cost of new homes with a relentless stream of taxes, uh, development fees, levies. Then on top of that, you got provinces like BC and Ontario, they actually charge you just because you want to buy a home. No services in return. That's quite a formula, by the way, though. Highest overall tax burden, leaving young workers with after-tax dollars to pay for the highest prices in history on essentials like housing and food and even gas. Okay, so where does that tax money go? Where does the tax money from the age group say 20 to 44? Those are the two lowest net worth cohorts in the population. Well, much of it's transferred to services for those with by far the highest net worth in the country, 65 plus. And again, judging by the response last week, it doesn't seem to bother those on the receiving end. As I mentioned, this is last week, I told you about pension expert Greg Hurst calling the Canada Pension Plan a massive transfer of wealth from younger generations to older ones. So I'm not going to go further with that. 
But I didn't mention last week the $59 billion paid in old age security, paid to people 65 and over with net incomes as high as 137000 And by the way, that number is going to be jacked up to about $81 billion in the next two, three years. But what about the taxes that also support health care? Obviously needed. That's a huge proportion, the biggest proportion of government spending. Well, it's not even quote a close. Yeah, younger generations pay the taxes, but about two and a half times more is spent on people 65 to 70 than workers in their 20s and 30s and early 40s. And the expenditures explode to about four times more in health care for those who are 75 and above. Here's my point, though. The biggest overall tax burden in history on young people, but it goes to pay for services, for pensions and health care for seniors whose average net worth dwarfs that of younger Canadians. And it doesn't stop there. <clears throat> I'm sure many people are aware of this, that younger workers are going to spend all their working lives paying interest on government debt that they didn't incur. That includes paying interest on billions first borrowed, then wasted and misspent as outlined in numerous reports by the Auditor General. And billions unaccounted for, by the way, reported by the Parliamentary Budget Office. Well, they're going to pay interest on those borrowings for the rest of their lives. I mean, it's $2 trillion if you're talking federal and provincial debt. And it's rising the cost because interest rates are going up. Finally, who's impacted the most by government policies that have created a significant decline in capital investment and productivity per capita, along with our competitiveness ranking? And if it's not reversed, a declining standard of living, well, again, it's young people, the younger generation of workers. Well, I don't see any sign that they know it, but the younger generation pays for the lack of focus on economic growth and financial sustainability. Now, look, I understand people clearly have different priorities. And this is certainly one of mine, is what are we doing about the vulnerable, about the young people? And I don't say that anyone has to share my concern over what we're doing financially to young workers and the younger generation. I mean, it kind of looks like few do. But let's stop pretending, okay? Let's not pretending that we do care. Can we stop the nonsense about how deeply we care when the evidence suggests absolutely the opposite? One of the great things about doing Money Talks over so many years, you get to meet and get a chance to chat with some really deep thinkers about the markets, about the economy, about things that we care about. And that's why I've been excited for a few weeks here when we booked Tony Greer with me. You know him at TG Macro on Twitter, at TG Macro. Uh, you can find him, of course. He's the editor of The Morning Navigator. Still, how he does that is beyond me because literally it's every morning. Uh, I also enjoy him on Substack, tgmacro.substack.com. Tony, appreciate you finding time. Obviously a busy time, but it's always a busy time when you're a trader. Mike, I always have time for people like you, though. This is the most important time that I spend during the day is, you know, giving back and having conversations with people that have given me a platform and a place to speak to an audience. And uh, you guys are top priority for me, man. Well, we appreciate that. And let me start with this, is that Tony was the guy who came along with this phrase called the great rotation. It was from tech to commodities, but he didn't wait. He did it. Uh, the timing was perfect. I remember we had done a conference on the coming commodity bull market, and I reach out and there's Tony. Tony's saying, hey guys, you know, let's get out of tech and let's get into commodities. Now here's something, a, a wonderful call, but I think you topped it because when you came into March of this year, you said, you know, no, I don't like tech, but I'm buying them. <laughs> you know, the markets and your methodology and your process had taken you to that point. 
And I, I was just, as I say, I thought that was incredibly impressive. Can you share with me the kinds of things you looked at? Because that's a pretty big about face to saying, I don't like these companies. I shorted and made some money. Now I'm going to go long in March of this year, which is pretty damn good timing. Yeah. Well, Mike, I'm out of that trade and on to the next one already, yeah. but let's go into it for a moment, right? Like that is... Um, that trade is purely a product of my process, yeah. which I've, you know, which I've become really proud of. It's something that, um, you know, kind of was in its nascent stages when I was working for other banks or just call it other employers, and you know, kind of casually, more casually trading on the side, um, not you know, casually, not spending enough time trading on the side. Then when I started my own business and I had more time to really, really dig into, you know, my own trading book and my process of following the markets, I came out with basically a spreadsheet that helps me follow the markets, Mike. And as a market junkie, I get excited to look at the closes every single day, every week, every month, and look at the performance of securities across those periods of time. So every Friday at four o'clock, I sit here and, you know, take down the weekly performance. And every month end, I take down that performance. I study it. I see what was moving the most. I see what moves were the most technically relevant. And, you know, I try to decide how to guide my clients into the right sectors for the right periods of time. And, you know, when we were in a period, just to speak to that trade a little bit, you know, we, we did manage to be on the right side of the outflows from technology and into natural resources um, last year, but that was last year's trade, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so this year we had a pivot into, uh, into technology and we, we sold that trade um, on the NVIDIA breakout. You know, basically when NVIDIA came out with the news, that was a big out and we sold the tech that we had into that rally and kind of sat here looking for the next trade. But that was from the place of, Technology was beaten up. There was a humongous rate reversal in the markets, right? That yes. was the time. Yeah, yeah. That was when Jerome Powell had a meeting on the FOMC, I think on Wednesday, and said that the terminal rate on rate hikes was going to be higher than the market anticipated. Two-year notes traded 5% that day. The next morning we came in was the Silicon Valley Bank blow up. And by Monday, two-year yields traded 4%. So that was an unbelievable new high and reversal that happened at light speed. Yeah. Like, you know, that was the fastest rate move I've ever seen potentially. And the one way to think about it was, okay, at this point, let's look at the equity board, right? The most beaten up stocks are tech stocks. If we've got a rate reversal that's going to start, you know, that's going to start trending lower, higher rates is what's been killing these growth businesses, so maybe we can be quick enough and get into technology before the big behemoths figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what happened. You know, it was just kind of the gut reaction to that. And, you know, it took a couple of days to come up with the idea to buy tech. It wasn't like that weekend that we decided to. Um, but when it started to show that it performed out of there, started to make some attack on some technical resistance levels. For me, that's like an instant green light go. So we got into tech. We wrote it for about five months or so. And uh, it was a great trade. It was a great trade, right? We got a good in, a good out, quick in, a good out in the NVIDIA news that gave us a real gap higher on the position we had on. And we traded them, you know, and that's kind of always the way that, that we'll do it. And, and then I'm doing it here at TG Macro. And, you know, and then, then from there, we kind of sat tight for a little while and we kind of pivoted back into energy, right? Because I think that there's a chance right now that we see a, a short period 
where the great rotation can come back again and we see a little bit of pullback in tech and a little bit of rally in commodities. But I don't want to go too far yeah. past uh, the conversation. But there's, there's so many things within that. One, I just want to highlight process just for a second. You know, you cannot perform in anything, in a business or what have you, but in the markets without a process. And your process is born of 30 years of direct experience, direct trading experience and analytical experience, of course, in the last several years, nearly, nearly a decade. But I'm just pointing that out. If people try and approach these markets without a process, they're dead. So that's one thing. But the other was uh, interesting about the sort of time frames we're dealing with now seems to have shortened. Like it's difficult for you to say, or anyone, I meant, but you've done it accurately, to say, hey, this is a trade you're going to sit in for a while. No, you don't. Of course, you don't know that. But as I say, have you noticed the time frames just shifting on this and shortening at least? As you say, got in and here we are just five months later. Ah, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, the, you know, Mike, that I, this I think is very much, you know, we've been calling this market um, a totally chaotic, nonlinear mm-hmm. market. Right. And I think that that's a function of the twos, tens curve, for example, you know, the yield curve being buried at like minus 100 basis points. Right. We're at historic low levels in the curve here. And I feel like what that means is you're going to wake up every morning and some mornings there's going to be a snowball that goes through the window that ruins all your plans that day. Yeah. Right. And all your trading plans where, you know, you think you're trading the oil follow through and oil gets crushed that day. And you think gold is breaking out and gold gets crushed the next day. And you think you're buying something on the dip and it keeps going, right? Mm-hmm. Like there have just been t- – this this market has been especially, especially tricky. You know, like you said, we're seeing, we're seeing viable moves within sectors to participate in that are like, you know, intra-year trades, yeah. right? There are trades that are lasting only, you know, four weeks, eight weeks, maybe a quarter. And then already it looks like this is the next sector that can go now. So with me, well, that's the way I look at the world. And yeah, this has been a crazy, crazy, hectic year that's been not like many other years that I've ever seen before. And when you're saying sort of nonlinear, just to, to clarify, I mean, I would assume you're thinking, you know, these old relationships don't work or things you say, well, that would make sense, you know, and like you jack up interest rates, well, X, Y, and Z said happen, and then it doesn't happen, you know. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we just saw rates go higher and you could have expected the builders to get crushed and the builders didn't get crushed. They kept performing. So we got into those because they showed signs of strength. And next thing you know, they rallied and we got out of them again. But I'm saying like that was a trade that we rode higher in the builders while rates were rising. Yeah. Right. Like counterintuitive. Uh, uh, Do you do you use an overview, um, you know, a big picture overview and then drill drown? Is it strictly uh, driven by what you're seeing in all your indicators? I mean, and to heck with what you think, to heck with your opinion, it's the indicators that are going to drive the bus. Yeah, that's the way to look at it, Mike. I, you know, I used to trade with the idea that I would sort of consume as much information mm-hmm. as I could consume and I would decide what was, you know, too cheap or too expensive and I'd put my positions on and I'd wait for the world to come to my view. Yeah. And, and that was such a ridiculous approach to making money now that I look back on it. Um, but it was really the way that I learned, I suppose. And then I just started realizing if, you know, you follow the tracks on the market, sometimes the market tells you which way it's going to go, you know. And so it became very much, I don't have an opinion. I let the market yes. tell me which way to be in, you know. And then just kind of putting that together with, you know, I guess a technical overlay 
of, you know, knowing where there's going to be some acceleration, knowing when things are consolidating, knowing when things can explode, when they're susceptible to breakdown, you know, all of that stuff goes together into, you know, putting your, putting you and your clients in the right trades for the right periods of time. It's interesting when I listen to you and forgive me, this isn't your words, these are mine, but I listen to the professionalism there and I think, is that the antithesis of how they make decisions politically? <laughs> you know? well, right, right. I mean, they don't have a methodology. They don't have a process. They don't have an exit point. I mean, the list just goes on. And I'm just, as I say, listening to you going, that's how a professional does it. And we don't have professionals making these major decisions. So. No, yeah. that's exactly right. Mike. That's why I stick to the markets. Believe me. Yeah. Let's talk about oil for a second, because I know you've been posting just recently, and again at TG Macro, you've been posting and you've been in the Morning Navigator that hey, that oil trade's getting real interesting. You know that. Uh, so I want you to elaborate on the oil, and of course, uh, I just want to let people know about the podcast Oil Ground Up, Oil Ground Up with Tony. Uh, you know, which gives an uh, can elaborate on his views on that marketplace, but. Okay, what grabbed your attention first? Yeah, Mike, thanks very much for highlighting the podcast. Super kind of you. Um, I'm enjoying that. And so to get right to the oil story, um, you know, the narrative, I think, has been during this long period that oil consolidated between like 67 and 75, there was a real clear SPR sale from the Biden administration as the seller and the OPEC tightening, you know, courtesy of Mohammed bin Salman and the rest of Saudi Arabia and the crew um, kind of on the supporting the oil side, right? So there was a strong back and forth there. Output cuts, um, OPEC cuts output, SPR comes out with more sales, right? And there was a real back and forth there. There was as much as, you know, an actual Biden and MBS meeting in Riyadh, right? Um, That happened last year. And so that all of this happened and oil consolidated for months and months and months. And so that's when I start salivating because I know that eventually it's going to break out and we're going to be able to make some money. And I don't even know which direction yet. But as it turns out, we basically stop announcing that we're going to sell the SPR. So we finished selling our strategic petroleum reserve for now, it looks like. The Biden administration tries to look smart and say, we're actually a buyer now on the dip now that oil is going lower. OPEC comes out and says, oh, that's really interesting. We're cutting output. And by the way, this time they came out and said, we're cutting output and the market should be aware that we may be doing more cuts more often, more cuts, maybe bigger cuts more often going forward. Right. So this is sort of in the wake of them realizing that it's becoming a little bit more politically unpalatable for Biden to sell any more of the SPR. I mean, taking it to zero would certainly raise an eyebrow. So now we've got OPEC coming out saying they're going to keep the market tight. That going along with the fact that all of the recession bros that I like to call them that are out there in finance trading these markets, they all got a little bit disappointed when we get our last GDP number. Right. We got an upside surprise in GDP. Everybody's got to put their recession forecast on hold for now. Oil demand, oil and gas demand has been extremely steady. Then in the last several weeks, we see a situation where the gasoline spreads tighten up and get extremely backwardated. Right. A lot of that has to do with some of the gas coming off the markets. It has to do with all kinds of um, it has to do with sanctions and there's a lot of moving parts to it. So what happens is the gasoline market tightens up, the crack spreads tighten up simultaneously, and when that happens, price generally rises in oil. So we just saw the whole complex rally. We saw it rally to the top of the range that it's been in, 
and it feels like it's about to break out. I had the top of the range at around 83. So we've broken out a little bit beyond that. And it looks like we've traded back down to that level. But if we maintain this story where the gasoline spreads remain tight, diesel has been not really the story this year like it was last year, but diesel is tightening up alongside it. And if you have gasoline and diesel tightening up on the exchange, we've got great evidence of, you know, continuing, continually strong gasoline demand. That, to me, paints the picture for a potential upside breakout. And when I think it breaks out after consolidating for so long, I'm going to expect it to rally for a long time. So I think that's about we're at the cusp of right now. And I think that in addition, not to go on too long of a rant, I feel like there's tension between OPEC and Biden, or at least between Saudi Arabia and Biden, to the point where I think they'd be happy to try to rally the price of gasoline to make his reelection a little bit more difficult. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens, Mike. That's how I'm playing it right now. But it's interesting to hear the the sort of parts of the fundamentals that you're seeing as a backdrop to it, but then getting the confirmation within uh, within the markets itself. I mean, what, exactly. one of the puzzles I've had uh, is it seemed like the fiscal demand was there. The physical demand was there for oil, not getting necessarily reflected in that drop in prices below 70, for example. I'm sa- I mean, I was asking, well, where's, where are some of the fundamentals to support that drop? You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not seeing it, you know, uh, uh, as you just alluded to. In fact, we've seen the opposite. I mean, I, I'm on that long, long-term view of having lived in India, for example. Are they kidding me? Do you think they don't want energy? you know, the most populous country in the world. You know, I know China has yeah. been a disappointment in demand, but long term, it's demand is there, you know, period. Uh, and all mm-hmm. the emerging markets, you know, all the emerging markets, I mean, energy is raising your standard of living. So I see that as a major backdrop, but I never saw anything that supported the drop. You know, I know China was a disappointment, but it just seemed like the uh, commodity markets wasn't particularly attached to the uh to the fundamentals in the physical physical market. Yeah, no, it's been it's been a tough read, Mike. It really yeah. has. There's you know, there's a while where we still had, you know, gasoline inventories and diesel inventories on their lows and the spreads leveled off and the price backed off, you know, it was like, you know, really kind of some surprising stuff going on. But, you know, I think now the gas market is in really good shape, yeah. right? With cracks rallying, spreads rallying, you've got refined, you know, my my trade is to be in the stocks. Um, oil is one of the commodities that I do actually trade, but most of the time I'm looking at the macro world and trying to trade, you know, the right sectors in the equity market. Yes. Um, we've gotten our clients into oil and into oil stocks recently. The best performers that I've seen, you know, names like Marathon Petroleum, which happens to be a name that I went with at your conference. Yes, at the World Outlook, yes, in February. Yeah. And you guys were like, what are you going to be in for the next year? And I said, I'm going to stay with a refiner. And so Marathon is sailing along yeah. this year, which is really making my call look good. Um, and then you've got oil services picking up right behind it and EMP kind of right behind that. But I think that what's most important to me is that this year, all we've seen, and especially most recently, heavy equity inflows into tech heavy equity outflows out of energy because they're expecting the recession, mm-hmm. right? So if we have a situation now where rates can go higher, if CPI is like in line or a little bit worse and the bond market continues to kind of tail off, rates continue to kind of peak higher, to me, that's another sign that we could see those growth stocks, i.e. technology, back off with higher yields and the commodity markets go on a run again. 
you know, higher yields kind of confirm for the portfolio managers that we are in an inflationary period that people are going to latch on to hard assets in. And then that trade kind of materializes before your eyes. So we'll see what happens. It's been weird. It's been only an oil commodity rally so far, if you've yeah. noticed, right? Gold backed off, call it 100 bucks from, you know, almost 2K to 1915 now. Base metals have been nowhere. Copper's breaking down again, technically below moving averages. The grains market has been a random number generator to me. I can barely understand what's going on in grains, and I haven't traded them in months because they're not trending. Um, excuse me, years because they're not trending. Um, so I'm really oil centric right now, Mike. Right, I'm a, I'm a bull market trader, and I'm most comfortable swimming in the uh, energy and oil world. So that's really where I've got all my chips right now. Uh, let me ask about another though. That's sort of not uh, again the confirmations we look for. Um, you know, so gold is backed off for sure, but it has not a bad, and I'm not talking as a trader. If you just look at the trend, you know, it's, it's done well. Who hasn't done well? Gold stocks. Like yeah. they did not follow that trend. Uh, now, you know, I sit back and go, I didn't buy any because of that, but I sort of go, I want to. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not funny. You sit there and you go, I actually want to buy these, but they're not allowing me to because I'm not seeing the action you'd need. It's just funny. But yeah, they have not kept pace. No, they've been terrible. You know, I you know you can chart them versus gold, right? And yeah. chart GDX versus the um, versus the gold, the commodity, and it just continues to you know slump. Yeah. And I think that's what you see now. I mean, I'm I'm literally kind of on my back with a, a gold miners position, or I'm not really on my back, but about to stop out of it off about five percent. Um, my stop is right at twenty nine here, and it hasn't triggered yet, but I'm I'm guessing that it's going to. It's one of those sectors that's just kind of underperforming and not wanted. Yeah. Right. There's nobody out there talking about it. There's no excitement. Are you going to put your money in AI right now, Mike, or in gold stocks if you want to make money in the short term? Yeah. Right. Gold stocks, you have no prognosis. At least AI, you're rolling the dice a little bit and you're in the game. So I feel like that's what a lot of portfolio managers are claiming to at the moment. Let me jump to the base metals for a second. Uh, again, uh, I've got that longer term perspective, you know, but but what are you seeing in the base metals? Base metals have kind of been, you know, for a trader, Mike, um, it's been a no-fly zone yeah. for me, right? I've, I've gone with a couple of upside breakouts in copper, and I've been disappointed. You know, I'm still of the mindset that if we are going to continue with this aggressive push to carbon neutral and electric battery power, the copper and aluminum and cobalt and lithium, and it's got to come from somewhere, Right. And we're generally at historically low inventories right now across the base metals complex, definitely in copper and aluminum. And so I keep wondering, you know, if we're going to have this big push towards electric battery power, where are they going to get the metal from and when is the price going to respond? So I kind of hold a fundamental long term view of it. But until I see sectors like XME, you know, industrial metals and mining trending, and, you know, really competing with some of the other leaders on the board on the year, it doesn't get excited for me as a trade to be in, you know, so that that's just how I'm looking at them. And, you know, I probably tried Freeport once or twice from the long side this year only to make no money trading it. And so if they're not going to trend, then I'm not going to participate. That's kind of how I look at it, you know. But I, I think that is a wonderful example of, uh, as you say, you haven't had the triggers to get you into a trade that you might quite like. You know, and, yeah. and, but it's it really difficult for people to get over their own opinions, you know, to, to not care about their opinions. You know, as I try and explain that, I say, well, my God, if my opinions mattered, 
then everything I'd ever bought would have gone up. I mean, clearly I made a pay short, but you know, clearly that's my opinion. And uh, believe me, that hasn't been the reality. But I I can't tell you, Tony Dealing, having the pleasure and opportunity to deal, as you say it out, the World Outlook Conference, great. We see a quick 1,200 people. And it's fantastic to chat with them. And and I do in other areas too. And my point just being that has to be, there's lots about discipline that's difficult for people to get, you know, to uh, need the tools to overcome your emotions is how I'd put it. Uh, But this is the one, somehow we've fallen in love with our opinions and the reality doesn't match those opinions. We don't care. Well, what a formula for losing money. Uh, And you've just described it beautifully how a professional does it. Yeah, you've got the opinion yeah. and you're waiting for the, the signals to, to act on yeah, that opinion. Right. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, my hands are tied until the market shows me that, you know, that these stocks are doing exciting bull market type things. Yeah. Right. And unless I don't, if I don't see them, I'm not going to get involved. And I, I like the way you tied it together to you said something that's one of my f- most firm beliefs in trading is that you have to trade with no emotion. Yeah. And you can only trade with no emotion if you have a procedure. Right. And if you have a procedure and a process that's kind of getting you into and out of things, then, you know, you're kind of just there driving the car, you know, and it's not it doesn't have to be as, you know, viscerally stressful if you know how to manage risk. Mm -hmm. And when you when you lose on trade, you get out. And I love nothing more than taking small losses. Yeah. And so I'll nick myself 100 times. But usually when you know, when you hit the payroll, you pay for all those little losses. And that's the only way to make money trading. One of my favorite quotes, which encompasses what you've just said is Bernard Baruch saying, if you don't know who you are, the markets are an expensive place to find out. So <laughs> that's really good. Yeah, yeah. Because I certainly didn't have the emotional makeup to show that discipline on a very short term. And, and I think your point is absolutely has to be heated, which is think about that. Everyone, he loves to take small losses, you know, and I always think I've watched this miraculous magician's trip trick there's nothing like a short-term loss to turn that into a long-term hold. You know, that's what I yeah, see people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I've, I've seen so many people do that. You know, like, uh, what were you holding that for? Well, about a month. It's a spec, you know, on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. Well, wasn't that, yeah. wasn't that eight years ago? <laughs> yeah. Because they, can't, yeah, they don't have the emotional makeup to take even a small loss, let alone. And when that's what turns into big losses. Someone who can't take small, now you found out how to get a big loss. Yeah, yeah, that ties into really well, like one of the, you know, things people often ask me, like, what's your trading time frame, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, my ideal time frame is like, you know, two days to two weeks, you know, that's generally the moves that I, I like to hunt. But the only way that I stay in trades longer than that is when the trade keeps me in it. Yes. Right. Like I I operate with a trailing stop loss. So if I buy something and I have a trailing stop loss, you know, I may have a two week or two, two, two day to two week time frame. Some positions I've been in for a year and a half with the same idea because they've never taken me out, you know, and, and you just like Marathon Petroleum last year mm-hmm. happened like that. We got in and we set our stop and our stop never got triggered for the entire year. Stock was up 80 percent by the time it was over. So that's the only way that I've learned to stay with a winner is when yeah. the market lets me stay in it and I keep moving my stop loss every day that it goes up. And it never catches you. So that's a good, that's, that's one of the good stories that happens, you know, sometimes in the markets when you get them right. Well, the problem with the market is it's such a clear scorecard. You know, I, I say about yeah. whatever analysts or analysis I put out, what I say, well, I appreciate you disagree. We'll find out. 
you know, I mean, that's another discipline rule. Right? Yeah. Yep. We're, we're there to make exactly. money. We're there to do these things. And it's, uh, but that's why the business, I mean, sorry, it's just so fascinating, so engaging. You can find so much out about yourself, about how the world works, how other people, you know, et cetera. Uh, let, let's just finish with this. And I know it's the broad thing. And here I'm talking about technical analysis. And then I ask you the big fundamental. But broadly okay. speaking, do you stay optimistic or, or do you care if it's optimistic? Or, you know, when you look at the market, you look at the things that are happening, because this is part of that disconnect that we're facing right now. Hey, interest rates are up. The market shouldn't be up. You know, that mm. that I know that's simplistic, but that kind of thing. So do, do you have an overall view of the stock market? Anything, any indicators giving you anything here? Um, well, yeah, you put it this way. I, I wake up bullish, right? As, as a general premise, yep. I really do. You know, that, that's kind of how I, how I approach trading and approach my job and things like that. No matter what's going on with the S&P, I'm always trying to hunt the things that trade from the bottom left of my screen yes. to the top right hand of my screen, you know, across different kinds of time frames. So that's the, those are the things that I can get in and participate in without hurting myself. So what I think about the stock market now is, you know, I, I do think it's going to be volatile. But what 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 I'm OK with is that the economy seems to be doing a little bit better than people expected. Sure. And if rates are going to rise and the economy is going to continue to hang in there better than people expected, that's a pretty good recipe for a bull market. Like I've seen that recipe before where rates are rising slowly you know, and the economy is actually kind of hanging in there so they can bear the higher rates and the stock market's okay with that. So I feel like, you know, we're still working on a bit of a technical breakout. So then behind that, you've got the fact that it's a little bit, you know, a, li a little bit, so there are times when people get bullish, but mostly speaking, everybody is waiting for the big bomb to drop yeah. and the big recession to hit. And that's going to, you know, when the big recession may hit, that's fine and interesting. I don't know what that has to do with the stock market, right? Because one is an economic condition and the other one is a market of security. So I don't think that they necessarily have to mean that a recession is bad for stock market. So if we're going to have this religion that we're getting into now with AI, where investors are not very concerned about valuations and they're happy to continue to go after you know, next year's earnings and next year's story, et cetera, et cetera, that can go on a lot longer than the bears can stay solvent. And if we then run into a situation like we're running into now with oil, where, you know, a tight market leads to higher energy prices, leads to an inflationary scenario, leads to commodities can rally. I have a tough time figuring out why the stock market should collapse. Yeah. Right now, I'll trade. I'll trade dips, and I'll expect things to back off and things like that. But generally speaking, I think the direction that the S and P is headed is north. And again, as you say, you're focusing on the oil sector. That's the one you're comfortable with at this point. Uh, you know, and of course, people can just keep up with you by just uh, subscribing to the Morning Navigator because the markets change and you are forced to write about it on a daily basis. But also speaking of oil, and let me remind people again that you do the Oil Ground Up podcast or, of course, on Substack, tgmacro.substack.com or something I check every day is at TG Macro on Twitter. So lots of opportunity. The markets change. Tony will let you know what he thinks about it. And Tony, in the meantime, know how much we appreciate you finding time for our audience. Sincerely, Billy, uh, thank you. Mike, you're a sweetheart. I absolutely loved coming to the conference. I, I, I saw what the Mike Campbell magic was all about when I was there. <laughs> and I, I'm, just, I'm honored to be on your team, man. Anytime you want to hear from me about markets, you have my time. Well, that's wonderful. Thanks, Tony.
You're very welcome, sir. Thank you. Time now for the quote of the week. Actually, I've got two for you, and they're coming out of a report by the TD Bank on immigration, uh, student and work visa programs that added 1.2 million people in 12 months. And of course, the federal government's talking about just on the immigration side, 500,000 more immigrants per year. Of course, they can't make any promises on the number of student visas, which numbered, by the way, 671,000 last year. Why? Because they don't have a target and they have no clue. But we do know this, they're all going to need housing and medical care for people who seek permanent residence. Which brings me to the TD Bank report entitled, Balancing Canada's Pop in Population. In quotes, while population growth is a good thing and a necessary remedy to aging domestic demographics, the benefits erode if it occurs too fast relative to a country's ability to plan and absorb new entrants within the economic and social infrastructure. Well, that's Canada. Uh, They go on to comment on the government's handling of the influx of newcomers, stating, while the right hand has been solving for labor market shortfalls, the left hand has not put in place the appropriate infrastructure to absorb this large influx of people, particularly if the intention is to continuation of it for a longer-term basis, end of quote. Well, that's a nice way of saying no one in government thought of the implications of dramatically increasing the population on housing, health care, and every other government service. Obviously, we're living in a world where the cost of living, where interest rates, where inflation numbers all seem to dominate. At least when we look down at our own personal financial circumstances, I want to bring Mike Levy in to discuss a new study by the CIBC uh, that shows that maybe the impact continues to grow here. Mike, you know, you've been saying this for a while that they raised rates, but that doesn't mean that everybody gets impacted at the same degree at the same time. I mean, maybe my mortgage wasn't due for another few years or, you know, things along those lines. Certainly in industry, different industries got impacted at a different rate. And that study seems to confirm that. Well, it does, Mike, and I, I really like the CIBC study. I like Andrew Grantham, who does, you know, sort of uh, runs these studies and uh, done an excellent job on this one, pointing out that uh, consumer spending has been resilient. First part of the year, it was very resilient coming off uh, the pandemic, but things seem to have just started to change a little going into late summer and uh, there's cracks starting to show in spending and stuff as you say we've been talking about of course rising interest rates uh, are, are, are sort of the key the headline because that's going to make a difference uh, particularly when people are going out to renew mortgages for instance but we also have to talk about un- or sorry inflation and inflation is stopping people from spending as much because it's just too darn expensive and uh, thirdly unemployment rates are finally starting to drift higher so these three things are really impacting going forward i say that going forward on consumer spending and that sort of the final thing can lead to recession and we can't put that out of our minds well i'd say first of all that uh, this is a reminder that cost of living and inflation aren't the same thing so for example if a, a cost of an item goes up relentlessly for six months and then stays flat we report that as zero inflation because of course 
inflation measures the rate of increase in prices. But, you know, once we got to these levels, these plateau levels, you know, I mean, for some people are back at $2 a liter gas, for example. Well, it doesn't do you much good. And I think that's where it's starting to impact is I think we do have too much focus on inflation. If we're talking about the impact on individuals, it's because if they couldn't afford it in April, they can't afford it in July, you know, or August, you know. So, yeah, and it is interesting. We're starting to see the cracks, as you say, and the implications are for interest rates, are for inflation and are for economic growth, obviously. And I think one of the biggest uh, changes is going to be when people have to start <clears throat> renewing their mortgages, and that's now into 2024, 2025. That's going to have a significant impact on household budgets. They are going to have to make much larger payments. Now, you've got to pay for your mortgage, Mike. You can't go out and spend like you were spending the first six or seven months of this year. And remember, mortgage rates 2019, 2020 were somewhere two percent or even under two percent and now right now we're looking at five and a half percent or higher well mike there's a lot of people that are going to have to scrape together money to either renew their mortgages whether on a short-term basis or on a five-year fixed but that money is going to have to come out of their spending money so we could see people a not spending as much because mortgage is eating it up i mean really eating it up and the other thing that the CIBC study pointed out, defaults are not going to be as rampant as they might be because the um, value of housing has gone up so significantly that people may lose their residence, but there's not going to be losses taken by the financial institutions because they're going to be able to get out from under because the value of real estate has gone up. Obviously, Mike, this is a story that everybody's going to be watching because of the impact on uh, the overall economy, on inflation numbers, on interest rates, all of it. And we'll be here to chronicle it. Well, Bill C-18 has certainly got people's attention. It's the bill that, of course, that uh, gave a choice to major uh, social media platforms like uh, Meta or like uh, Google to say, hey, either you pay for linking to Canadian content or don't link it. Well, they seem to have chosen don't link it. Uh, there's so many implications for this. I'm so pleased to have with me Peter Menzi is a ser uh, senior fellow with the McDonnell Laurier Institute, but he's also the former publisher of the Calgary Herald. He's a uh, past vice chair of the CRTC. No better person to talk to about this. Peter, appreciate you finding time. Thanks for your interest. I uh, hope I can help you along with this. Well, you've been writing about it, you know, uh, uh, posting about it, that kind of stuff. And I just read an article earlier in the week where you said this may be one of the worst pieces of legislation in your memory. Maybe start by elaborating on that statement. What was intended was the creation of more jobs in journalism, more financial stability for news platforms, news organizations in general. That's, that was the public policy goal. Um, so far, the public policy outcome is going to be less money for news organizations than they had months ago, um, and a year from now, much much less than many of them than many of them have right now, which is bound to mean uh, fewer jobs for journalists, and at the same time, also there's going to be fewer opportunities for startups and innovators, at least at this stage. So. 
I can you think of I mean, I can't think of another time with any government. I mean, there's probably been some howlers along the line, but but where where you got the exact opposite of what you were trying to do as an outcome. Well, I, I'm critical of anything that costs people their livelihood and their jobs. And, you know, uh, I, I see so many of the independent media uh, speaking out at this point, certainly no expansion, worried about the uncertainty. The list goes on. So uh, unless that was the goal, it's been a complete failure. And, and again, it's easy for me to sit there and almost be glib in saying that or casual. It's not. People are losing their jobs. Opportunities are lost. The growth is going to go. As you say, I hope that wasn't their goal, but that's what they're accomplishing. The government sees any opposition to its bill or any criticism of it as political, right? Because that's the world they live in. I mean, I don't think the conservatives would be much different, to be honest. And, and they're they're very careful not to say too much right now. I mean, that's one of the rules, I guess, when, you're, when your foe is destroying themselves, say nothing. Um, but at the same time, they don't want to be dragged into looking like they're backing big tech. And, but because, because the government was so dug in on this and, and viewed some of the criticism as just political opponents trying to make mm-hmm. them look bad, they look bad. Yeah. Right? If they just listened and taken a look at some of these things, they might have been able to salvage something from this. They might have been able to move forward. But I think a lot of people kind of got greedy, too. And certainly seemed dug in. What do you, uh, from all that you're reading, you know, sort of in the public landscape, what are the one or two biggest myths you're reading or hearing about this particular bill? Right now, the government's sort of saying Meta just doesn't want to pay its fair share, right? But nobody's really articulated. So what is the fair share, right? And that's that's actually one of the one of the reasons I think they're out is because nobody's put a cap on that. Yeah. Right. And that's that's the big, one of the big problems with with this. But anyway, that's where you get, I think, is the, the fair share um, and 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 the premise to it. Those are those are sort of the myths. And I mean, it's easy these days to demonize uh, big tech. I mean, 10 years ago, everybody thought they were wonderful. And all of a sudden, nobody likes them. I don't know how you could be a company and sign on to something where you have unlimited liability at this point, where you don't know the size of the liability, or in, in this case, the size of the cost. I mean, to me, that would be incredibly bad management to do that. Oh, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's shocking to me that, that people don't seem to be able to see that, and particularly that the framers of the legislation couldn't see that and didn't build that in, because that was, that was the one thing that for sure they could have done that would have given some sense of assurance. But from my understanding, from talking to people close to this, some of the expectations, uh, particularly from some of the larger uh, groups, uh, such as uh, uh, Bell Media, uh, for instance, and and News Media Canada, were very, very high uh, in terms of the amount of money they were going to get out of it. You know, if the expectations had been more or less in the 100 to $200 million range, um, they might have been able to get something. They certainly could have got more than they're getting now, uh, I think. Um, And, you know, Meta might have looked at it and said, okay, we can do that. Because part of the problem with this is whatever happens in Canada, people are going to replicate elsewhere. So whatever the bill is in Canada, multiply it by 50. And and that's that's their total exposure. But you're dead right. There isn't a business executive in the world who would keep their job if they signed on to a deal or acquiesced to a piece of legislation to which they had un, to which they could not explain to their shareholders or their board 
how much is it going to cost? Well, I would have also thought that, uh, you know, it seems to me, and I'm on the outside, the federal government certainly didn't consider the point you just made, that Meta is thinking not just of Canada, but am I setting a precedent for around the world? And, you know, that becomes a little more understandable why they, they've got to sign the right deal for their company, you know, and that created the intransigence. Yeah, no, and News Media Canada hasn't helped because they've gone to the government and told them they represent everybody. Mm. Yeah. And they don't. No, they sure don't. Yeah, they, I mean, they nobody clearly... represents everybody, yeah. right? I mean, you can say you represent all the big guys and you can go in and say, well, we represent everybody who matters, right? Yeah. You can be as pompous about it as you want, that sort of stuff. But yeah, there's there's no way, although, you know, there were a number of independent uh, publishers who did show up at House of Commons hearings mm -hmm. and, they, and, and before the Senate hearings. So they did hear their point of view, um, but they chose to ignore it. Yeah. And those are the ones, I mean, everybody's hurt from this. This is a lose, lose, lose situation that we've, that we've got right now. But the ones who really hurt are the people who looked at, who figured out how to use Facebook and Google to build their businesses. Yes. And, and, and they looked at that and said, okay, these guys own this market share. I, I can't fight that, but I can ride that horse. And let me see, let me see how I can make it work for me. And, and that's, sorry, that's precisely what looks like has happened in terms when you look at, uh, you know, the importance of those to have sort of a free referral, a referral service, you know, the biggest organizations in social media saying, let me direct you to them. Well, certainly not many media outlets can afford to have created that same level of awareness with, you know, uh, and paid for it. So I, I think those kind of things have to be taken into account too. I, I would be extremely worried if I was a small publisher. I, I know, you know, I can start naming them. It seems like this week they finally got cut off. Yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, Jeff LG village media, mm. for instance, he's, he's successfully moved into a number of markets um, with, you know, a, a relatively interesting format. You know, he'll, he'll move into a post media market where there's one reporter left Yeah, and he'll, he'll hire four. Mm -hmm. What am I going to see now? Or I guess it's, what am I not going to see now? Well, I mean, I'm, not everybody's feeds have been shut down. Mm -hmm. um, my Facebook feed was this week, and I get I get no news. Uh, I was I was you know I don't I can't access BBC. I can't access the Guardian, the Daily Telegraph, the Washington Post. It's not just Canadian; it's everything. Yeah. Right? But that said, I went searching for that. Um, I didn't. If I hadn't gone searching for it, I probably wouldn't have noticed. Okay, so some of these big outlets have now gone to the Competition Bureau saying, can't we force, I mean, it's my reading, can't we force them to put links to us? I mean, it just seems so bizarre, like they've just figured this out, the importance to their business model. Yeah, and it's kind of like that you're making up a new argument at every stage, mm -hmm. right? So the original argument was Meta, Facebook and Instagram are stealing, and Google, they're, they're stealing our, our content and making money for us. And the response is, okay, we'll stop. And then it's like, oh my God, <laughs> you can't stop, right? Yeah. Like, the government, please make them continue to do this, right? And 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 that you know, you get a lot of publicity out of it. And 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 I guess the the big advantage from that an application like that is is that it it makes you know the companies look bad, right? Yeah. The big bad tech. And and there are you know there are real issues around monopolies and you know competition and that sort of stuff, but that those aren't really the issue with C eighteen other than you know, can can we bargain fairly? And I have sympathy for that 
for that portion of, 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 C, of C18. But yeah, you can't keep just making up different arguments. And from people who know the Competition Bureau and the processes there and the law there much better than I do, who I've talked to this week, there really isn't much of a chance of, I mean, this might get some legs with the Comp Bureau itself, but if it goes to the tribunal, um, you know, for, for you know, for, for, for judgment, it it doesn't really have a prayer. But it could create uncertainty for months and years. Well, as they used to say in the old serials uh, on the movie theater, to be continued. And Peter, I want to thank you. Uh, Peter is with a senior fellow with the McDonald Laurier Institute, former publisher, Calgary Herald. Uh, I appreciate very much you finding time for us. Hey, thanks for your interest. And you guys have a great weekend. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I'm going to call it the Taylor Swift edition. You know, normally I'm not a fan of, well, the celebrity culture, but I'm not going to let that stop me from saluting Taylor Swift's remarkable social and economic impact on the cities that uh, experience her era tour. I mean, it's like a one-woman salute to capitalism. But here's the stat that first got my attention. In every tour city she goes to, she donates a significant amount of money to the local food bank. And I say it is significant. You know what the LA Food Bank says? It was enough to feed 500,000 people per month. Are you kidding me? And once it was announced that Taylor had made the donation, the phone started ringing for them. In what would be normally kind of a quiet time of year for donations, the food bank saw an immediate 43% increase. It was the same story in Arizona, in Seattle, more money in Atlanta. and Tampa, she uh, donated enough to feed about 125,000 people for some period of time. But the list goes on. Every city on the tour, I think that's worth saluting. And talk about sharing the wealth. Did you hear this one? The story broke that she gave all 50 truck drivers who were involved in the tour full-time a $100,000 bonus as they've now completed the U.S. portion of the tour. I think it was on Tuesday. But that didn't stop her. She kept going. She bonused every worker. In the end, it cost a reported $55 million. Now, to the economics and the success of the tour, well, Billy Joel went to the concert in Miami, and he said he hadn't seen anything like this since Beatlemania, although I have to add that the tickets are a tad more expensive. Oh, this is going to really age me. I saw the Beatles, and it was October 22, 1964. Yeah, I was nearly a baby. And the tickets were $5. The average face value of the Swift tickets today is about 68 times more at 340 Canadian. Of course, scalpers tickets way higher than that, resale tickets. But even after adjusting for inflation, you know, today's tickets are still about 40% more. But you also got to keep in, in mind the tour expenses would be exponentially higher. Gosh, in the Beatles day, the four of them just ran on the stage and played. That was it. Today, you know, Taylor Swift, you're talking set designers, you're talking dancers. As I said, the 50 truck drivers transport, uh, transport the whole thing. Uh, costume designers, an army of sound engineers. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, it costs millions of dollars to put on a show. But let me finish with just a couple of numbers about the economic impact. Well, it's estimated that the tour itself is going to grow somewhere between one and one and a half million U.S. dollars. But L.A. estimates that they had six shows. And it boosted their GDP by $320 million. 3,000 people got employment. We got Chicago. It broke its all-time hotel record in the three concert days. 
Uh, Philadelphia Federal Reserve actually spoke specifically about the impact of the SWIFT tour. But I'll tell you, my favorites are all about those charitable donations. Gosh, I only wish that Special Olympic could be so lucky to have a real star's endorsement like Taylor Swift. But anyways, I want a big pat on the back. That's great stuff. As you know, this is the big topic for me, what's going on in the real estate market, but it's around the world also. And Ozzy, uh, you should have called this the shocking stats of the week because, man, we think our interest rates are gone, our mortgage rates are up. Man, I just had a look at the 30-year mortgage in the U.S., well, the interesting thing is it is a 30-year mortgage, and it's now the highest it's been in 23 years at 7.39%. And, you know, when you take a look and say, well, why is this happening? Well, U.S. Treasury yields, they are sort of the reference for mortgage rates, just like our bond rates in Canada determine the five-year term rather than the, 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 the bank rate. But the spike in yields comes from concerns about bond investors, about the huge debt that the government uh, is issuing this week, then there's the job market is strong. And the interesting thing, Mike, is the downgrade of, of the credit rating of the U.S. I mean, we forget that the Japanese are the largest foreign holders of U.S. treasuries, and they want a premium. Now, think about it. You and I, we know how much, how many dollars China has and how many the countries around the world own a piece of the U.S. And what if they want more money? What about they want more money from us? Because, Mike, Canada has a 16-year high for its five-year term at 6.9%, which moves the stress test to 8 Yeah, think about that. The stress test at 8%. No wonder some people can't qualify. Uh, back to the U.S. to credit thing. It's not just nationally, though. I mean, it seems like I feel like every couple of days I'm reading about, you know, some U.S. bank being put on credit watch. Mike, that is such an important observation because I think it's Moody's downgraded 10 banks. So is our wallet's 10 banks. Well, out of in those 10 banks, there's the M&T Bank, which happens to be the 19th largest U.S. bank by assets. Now, we say, okay, it's the largest bank. Well, it's out of 4,000 banks. It is the 19th largest bank that is now downgraded. Now, but in addition to that, Moody's announced six banks with ratings that they're under review, like anticipate serious problems to find them, and 11 banks with negative outlooks. So we have 27 banks added into the mix of mortgages rising and the, in each individual saying, oh, what does it do to the buyer? I mean, according to, uh, to the Redfin report, is the average mortgage payment was $2,600 in the U.S. during the four weeks ending July 30th, and that's a 19% increase over 2022. So it's painful all around. And we're going to see the same thing in Canada, of course, as, you know, especially you've come into the end of 23, but in 24, 25, you know, I've seen estimates that the average person who's got their mortgage renewal coming up in 24 or 25 is looking at 30% increase in their monthlies. You know, we talked to Mike Moffat last week, you know, real estate expert, uh, you know, with us, a great job, but he said he just got his mortgage renewed 1400 after tax dollars extra a month. 1400 after tax. So good. Go ahead and make your, you know, two, your two grand uh, raise per month, which never happens, uh, <laughs> I guess, unless I'm a UPS truck driver or I'm working at the port of Vancouver. But let's leave that. But, you know, <laughs> these are huge numbers and they're all after tax. Uh, when you see that across the board, though, Ozzy, you know, it seems to me that the impact of these rate rises is not over at all uh, in either side of the border. No, it isn't. And as more and more mortgages come due to be renewed, and it's going to accelerate next year. But 
as they come due, we have yet to see a lot, a lot of new listings. And that's what we saw in Surrey last month's uh, single family home. New listings up 24%, condos 28%. I expect when August numbers come in, that is going to continue. Where existing owners are saying, I just can't afford these extra payments. We have to make a change. Yeah. So, so it will affect our market. I think we're already seeing it. Yeah, and I think that's the point as we go forward. And the implications ripple through the whole in, uh, through the Canadian economy, U.S. economy. Why? Because we know renovations take place when someone buys a new home. You might buy paint to do in the new home. There's a lot of aspects is all I'm trying to say, landscaping, what have you. It's not just simply I'm not buying a new home. I can't get into a new home because I can't afford that stress test rate. Uh, it, it just, as I say, we're going to feel it throughout the economy. No question about it. Unfortunately, it's it's reality. So even if you say inflation isn't really there, we have the whole world is on strike looking for a lot more money because they go shopping and everything is a lot more expensive than 3.2%. Well, on that cheerful note, Ozzy, I want to thank you <laughs> and to remind people to go to ozbuzz.ca who keeps all the numbers, all the stats, everything going your way, ozbuzz.ca. Thanks, Ozzy. Thanks, Mike. Uh, I was always talking, thinking about jogging, Mike, and Joan Rivers says, the first time I see a jogger smiling, I'll consider it. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the way I feel, because when I started to jog, the ice scoops fall out of my glass. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. Ozzy Cosmos.ca. Let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Dare joins me. Vic, I was thinking about you in the week uh, watching that market action, but I, I had to take a note of it. I think it was uh, July 18th. You told us all about that story with Microsoft announcing that they may have a way to monetize, you know, uh, chat GPT. And presto, you know, the stock adds $100 billion in market cap. And you said, that's like ringing a bell to you. Well, how do you feel about that now? Because it looks like the market's confirmed your suspicion. Well, Microsoft is down about 13% from where the high it reached that day. And, and Mike, the way I look at markets, I don't try to pretend I'm an economist or something like that. I, I look at what I call changes in psychology, whether it's mass psychology like Jimmy Dynes used to talk about or at an individual level. But when I saw Microsoft add $100 billion dollars worth of market cap in less than an hour on an announcement that was tied to AI, I thought this has got to be some kind of a flag being waved at the bull, you know, whatever. Cherry on top, I think is what I said. And um, it gave all that back, by the way, like within two days. You know, mm -hmm. you make a hundred bill and you'll lose a hundred bill in two days and it's just a, a ho-hum week. Uh, it, you know, but I, but enough about my trading record. <laughs> yeah, it's just that's I thought that was a defining moment. I mean, everybody knows big cap tech has led the rally off the October lows, certainly led the rally off the what we call the banking crisis lows that happened in March. And since then, we've had this and I've talked about this uh, kind of a um, uh a redistribution in the stock market. You know, let's say some money people have sold Apple or Microsoft and maybe put it in Caterpillar or, or something like that. Uh, so we've had that. The, the NASDAQ has been the weakest index for sure. But I think the overall psychology here is changing. Uh, the overall psychology in the stock market. And I think one of the things that's doing that is the rising interest rates that we have. Yeah. I mean, interest rates are really marching up here. We've got the, the two-year treasury now at a 17-year high, and it feels like you know it's been inflation-driven, 
So it feels like interest rates are likely to go higher. And I think, you know, I'm looking at some market commentators, certainly looking at the rising need of governments to issue more debt. I think I saw a number like $1.6 trillion, you know, uh, in the first three quarters of the year. You know, I mean, this is massive amounts of money. So, again, some people are looking at that saying, hey, that's going to push interest rates up. So my take on that is that the governments have discovered that voters like fiscal stimulus, okay? So we're going to continue to have deficits, and I think that just equals we're going to continue to have inflation because if you print more currency, whether you call it a dollar bill or you call it a treasury bill, if you do that, that reduces the purchasing power of currency. So I think we're on this, whether or not it runs forever, you know, this is the economist could argue. I'm just thinking that the psychology, people are recognizing that the cost of stuff they need to buy or that they do buy, whether they need it or not, is going up faster than the CPI. That's inflation. They're going to try to get more wages, go on strike, whatever. You see some of the, the, the demands, some of the big outfit like the United Auto Workers, incredible demands as to what they want in terms of wage increases. So I think the psychology is the idea that, you know, the inflation is going to stay higher for longer Who's going to buy these bonds? So hence, yields are going up. And, and for you as a market watcher, as you gave us the hint back, as I said, on July 18th, you said, this is what I think is happening. Now I'm going to watch for indicators to reconfirm that and then take action. So can I assume that you played the market to go down, you know, once you got your confirmation shortly after that sort of Microsoft peak? Yeah, what I've been doing here, certainly over the last three weeks, um, just roughly for a time frame. I mean, I've been shorting the stock market. And by the way, it's been choppy. You know, I I think that's not unusual at a market top. It doesn't just, you know, hit a top and then just go straight down. It doesn't happen. So it's been choppy, but I've been shorting the stock market. I've been a buyer of the U.S. dollar. So I'll buy the U.S. dollar against the euro, uh, against the Canadian dollar. All over my blog in the past few weeks, I've been showing the Canadian dollar look really toppy around 76 cents. And uh, I, I was also short copper. Uh, I took profits on my position there on Friday. I, I'm looking at the Asian currencies. They're all weak. The Chinese, the Japanese, the Korean, and you know the rest of them, of course, because they got to march with those guys. Um, I, I, I've said this so many times over the years, but in the currency markets, capital comes to America for safety and opportunity. I think the market, the the psychology out there is a little worried and the U.S. dollar looks like a good place to go, particularly if you can get five and a half percent on cash. Well, I think that's another big component, no matter what we're talking about. You know, do people want to develop real estate, for example, in a market uncertainty? Uh, Now I can get five and a half. I think I'll take the five and a half. Some people are saying that, or as you say, dip into the stock market. Ah, maybe that five and a half starts looking good, especially say 17 year high in the two year. You're getting paid for a change. You know, we went through a number of years where you were not paid to sit on the sidelines and that made it tough. And you and I used to talk about we were worried about people taking risks, chasing the yield, you know. Now they don't have to chase very far. They can just go to a U.S. two year treasury, you know, and have a 17 year winner. I've seen some people are referring to all of that cash, and there's about five and a half trillion in U.S. Yeah. money market funds. They refer to that as dry powder. Like the people that put the money there are just going to go, oh, darn, I shouldn't have done that. I should have, I should have bought Apple or I should have whatever. Yeah. No, no. I, I think that money is rainy day money. Let's just yeah. 
put that there and we know we got it rather than taking risks and other things. And that's, again, part of the way the psychological or the way I look at what's the psychology of the market. And I think there's this idea to, okay, you know, I think maybe putting some aside, being a little safe might be not a bad idea. Well, you're reading my playbook. Vic, (laughs) you go out and have a terrific week, but I'll invite people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Look at the same charts that Victor has a look at. See what you see. Always worthwhile for me, victoradare.ca. Have a terrific week, Vic. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the Goofy Award. It seems like daily we're inundated with talk about climate change and what we're doing or not doing. Now, I understand it's a highly politicized issue, so I shouldn't expect perspective or context when it comes to the politicians. But you know what? That doesn't excuse the rest of us and certainly doesn't excuse the commentary in the media for this lack of context. And that brings me to the Goofy Award. What's the context I'm referring to? Canada emits only 1.5% of global emissions. As Finance Minister Christian Freeland stated to the Financial Times, no matter what we do, we can't move the dial. Well, it would seem fundamental that we should then talk about climate change, not do nothing, but do it within the context of what's a cost-benefit analysis. How do we get the best bang for the buck? How can we have the biggest impact? But according to the Parliamentary Budget Officer, that didn't happen in any of the $60 billion in climate spending in the last five years. But what's really goofy, I say, is virtually none of our discussion on climate is informed by the reality that Canada is not a big-time player. We emit only 1.5% of global emissions. I'm not saying that's a rationale not to take action. I'm not. But I am saying no to any policy that doesn't have a cost-benefit analysis. And that is precisely what the debate over the carbon tax overlooks. Now, keep in mind this. The original carbon tax was introduced in B.C. in, I think, 2008. But the legislation dictated that all revenue collected in the carbon tax had to be returned by reducing both individual and corporate income tax. In other words, it was revenue neutral. That was the key component that made it acceptable to both economists and business. Every tax is negative for economic growth, but by returning all the revenue back to individuals and businesses, it mitigated that impact. But now what's happened? Come on. Parliamentary Budget Office found that the feds haven't rebated what they've promised, let alone all the revenue. In BC, it's even worse. The NDP government keeps the vast majority of revenue, thereby significantly negatively impacting the economy and the cost of living. And I think it's cost them a heck of a lot of support for a carbon tax because it never should have been just a tax. The money should have been returned to those who paid it. The fact that government doesn't do a cost-benefit analysis, along with, they've got a lot of company in the climate-enamored commentary in the media, or academics and climate advocates, I think that reflects a dangerous level of intellectual laziness and superficiality. That's all the time we have this week. Hey, I want to invite you to join me, of course, on mikesmoneytalks.ca. And you can go and get the five, you can sign up right now for five minutes with Mike. It's a free newsletter we send out three times a week. Also, I, I love it when I get uh, people recommending Money Talks tweets, recommending Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. And the reason is straightforward because I get a chance to have a lot of uh, data put out there or 
brief uh, opinions from some experts that you're not seeing in the mainstream media. And I still think the more informed we are, the better we are as a country, the better our future. So you can help doing that by joining us on Money Talks, Tweets, etc., all the others. In the meantime, I hope you go out and have a terrific weekend.